0: Thank you, guys. Um, How are you doing? Good. That's awesome. It looks like no one followed my advice of staying home this Sunday. That's cool. Confidence in me. This is the moment of truth, though. So let's get into it. Um, About a year ago, a little less than a year ago, my wife and kids and I jumped in the car and went up to Joshua Tree. And we met my brother up there because he and his wife, get this, are pro rock climbers. They climb rocks for a living, which is a really hard profession to explain to our grandma. She We've tried so many times. Does not get it. It's the funniest thing ever. But yeah, we went up there. We took our three kids. Um, we have Gray. He's our oldest. He's five now. He was four then. And then Dallas, the middle child, who's definitely a middle child, is three. And Isley, who just turned one last Saturday, so we celebrated that, which was really fun, yeah. So we went up there, and, and as you know, if you've been to Joshua Tree, it's beautiful. It's, there's like a mystical appeal to it. I think hippies have been going there for many, many years, right, to encounter something. It's, it's just really beautiful. The desert is a beautiful space, but it's also a desolate place, the desert is, right? It brings up feelings of what is the point of life? It's empty and mundane and all that kind of stuff. Um, but for a four-year-old, it's fun for probably an hour. You know, there's only so many rocks you can throw at your brother and pretend sticks that are, are guns or whatever and all that kind of stuff. And, and so on the second day, we're rock climbing all day long in, in the desert. And the kids, are, they did really, really good. Um, Isley was a couple months at that point, which is so cute um, to have her there with us. But we're, we're rock climbing, and after the second day, Gray, our oldest, um, is getting a little, you know, a little anxious or whatever. And Dallas is asleep, Isley's asleep. We've been rock climbing all day. And he turns to um, my wife, Amy, and says those words that every parent has heard a million times Mom, Dad, I'm bored. That's right. And then my wife says the most brilliant thing I've ever heard her say. She says a lot of smart things, way smarter than me. But she says the most brilliant thing I've ever heard her say. She turns to Gray and she goes, Gray, it's good to be bored. And remember, we have been practicing boredom. And I'm like, what? What? <laughs> really? That's... that's amazing, like you've been telling our kids this? And she's like, yeah, you know? And I, I mean, it didn't stop Gray from being bored, it didn't stop him from asking for an iPhone every you know, two seconds. Um, but he is invited into a space where he doesn't have to cover up the feeling of boredom. And I think that's brilliant, because he remains bored, but now he's aware that he's bored, you know? and that it's a normal process and part of life. So why are we teaching our kids this practice that seems so strange? Why is she teaching our kids the art of boredom? Uh, Well, because as both of us have learned the hard way, life is not always thrilling, it's not always up, it's not always exciting, it's not even always scary or hurtful or painful or wild. Um, A lot of life is mundane, right? And you're speaking to a four on the Enneagram. And if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. Talk to me later. I'm a certified coach, so yeah. Anyways, um, I don't know what that means. But um, I, as a four, if you know anything about the Enneagram, we live for extremes. Extreme pain, we love that. We like, like, we get off on pain for some reason. And then like extreme beauty. We like want the extremes. But... Life's not like that, right? Life's usually in the mundane, the boring, the kind of purpose, you know, questioning your purpose. So if this sermon is for anybody, it's definitely for this guy right here. I need this. Bad. But I think that being aware, being aware in those feelings is an extremely useful tool to learn and practice. Because if a big chunk of our life seems to be um, monotonous Then, as people who follow Jesus then we should learn how to live in desolate liminal spaces well um, and again I'm preaching on this is because this is where I live I need this um, I want to be unique I want to be excited I want it to be exciting I want to have fun all the time I want a party I want depth and I want meaning but that's not reality um, so let's talk about that. I want to talk about emptiness. I want to talk about liminal spaces, the spaces between, and how we can be more aware of the divine flow all around us, and ultimately how that is all about love. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this community um, this morning. Um, I thank you that I get to be a part of it, that it's now my second home, and um, I pray that you would open my heart to what you're doing here today and that you'd open all of our ears to what you want to speak to us. And that ultimately we would um, come to realize that you are a loving God, a Father that isn't trying to form a religion, but really form a path of transformation. So through your words, may we be transformed this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I want to start with the mundane, I want to start with the dry, the pointlessness of our lives, which seems really depressing, because it kind of is. But we live, um, we do live a life, especially in the modern world, right, that's trying to be impressed or entertained all of the time. And I think when we suppress or ignore the reality of those desolate feelings and spaces, the mundane feelings... It can have an effect of anxiety and depression. And I've read currently that we are like at peak um, levels of anxiety in history right now, which has been started in the 50s and then has been increasing since then. Um, So this, I think, my friends, is why it's so important to practice this art of awareness or contemplation of God even in those spaces. So that we can reveal a way to the world that is better and more free. To practice awareness, to enter into liminal spaces with grace and wisdom, and to learn to see love all around us so that we can return from those spaces with a better story for the world. Um, Those dark nights of the soul, as John of the Cross so eloquently put it in his poem. What if we saw this as an opportunity that has the capacity to lead us into a newer way of navigating and being in this world? something that can break harmful patterns and hopefully lead us into a fuller, better life. And I think scripture leans a lot into the idea of coming to a fuller self when confronted with desert-like seasons in life. So I guess my question for all of us to prime us for this is, so what do you do when you find yourself in those places? What do you do when you find yourself in... Not just the boredom of life, but even the meaninglessness, the pointlessness of your life. Um, Again, this is something that I feel a lot. Um, So I'm speaking out of that. Because many things in our lives can cause these feelings. Maybe it was something someone said to you. Maybe uh, you were at work this week and a boss said something that was demeaning to you, right? And he put you down because you didn't hit the sales that you're supposed to hit this quarter. And you're like, what is the point of this job? What am I doing? I've been here for 20 years and I am still getting beat up. Or maybe a teacher or a parent called you stupid at one point in your life. Or maybe uh, there's some subconscious reaction to life situation because when you grew up there was some sort of trauma going on. Maybe it was something that you did. Maybe you cheated or you lied or you stole something or you screwed up or whatever and it left you feeling down and out. Or maybe you're just bored and you don't know why. I think many things can lead to empty feelings, and if you're anything like me, um, after I feel this desolate feeling, whatever, depression, whatever you want to call it, after feeling paralyzed by that, it usually sends, sends me out on like a a, dis, a discovery, a journey of discovery, right? I want to figure out, like, who am I? What is all this about? And I begin to ask questions like, what's the point? What's the point of all this? And I've been on this journey a few times now and I thought after I encountered Jesus for the first time that it'd be done. Nope. Still happens. Uh, But the first time that I was set out on this journey of discovery, I was in high school and it literally sent me to Zen monasteries in Long Beach where I would do like walking, chanting prayers to um, like tequila-scented strip clubs in Tijuana. It was like Two extremes, highs and lows, right? <laughs> Searching for answers in different religions and gurus and drugs and sex and all that stuff. And the first time I thought I found the answer to that age old question what is the point of life? Um, I concluded there is no God and that everything is pointless. Everything's meaningless. So, nihilism, right? The rejection of all religious and moral principles and the belief that everything's meaningless. And if everything's meaningless, well then, that gives me um, the pleasure to finding my own purpose. And so that's what I did. And so for me, it was to seek pleasure from anything that would provide it. And that was drugs. They did the trick. Until they didn't do the trick anymore. Um, I soon found heroin, and then I soon found homelessness, because those go hand in hand often. And my conclusion turned out to be pretty faulty. Uh, Because the drug stopped providing the desired (laughs) effects and being homeless was miserable, unlike the defined meaning I set out to create for myself. What does this have to do with Scripture? Well, there's a man in Scripture named Jacob, or Yaakov, whose name means to protect. But the root in Hebrew is means heel, and he lives up to this name when he comes out of his mother's womb as he snatches his brother Esau's heel. It's almost as if he wanted to be unique and special first, right? And later, from the same brother, Jacob steals his inheritance by deceiving his blind dad, Isaac, and this is how he inherits his nickname, the deceiver. Jacob, Yaakov is someone I can relate with. I can relate with him because his past is not so reputable, but also because just like me, Jacob was set out on a journey to try to make sense of his life after he made these mistakes. So this morning, we're going to jump into Jacob's journey in Genesis 28, 10 through 22. So here it is. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway or a ladder resting on the earth and with its top reaching to the heaven and the angels of God were ascending and then descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and all people on earth will be blessed through you and through your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head. He set it up as a pillar and he poured oil on top of it, because that's what you do, I guess. And he called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey that I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God, and the stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So Jacob runs from his household because he has stolen his brother's inheritance, and his brother wants him dead. He is forced into exile, into banishment. And his mother tells him, go find a wife. Basically, go find another life somewhere else. You got to go. You need to run. And this journey is long. It's hard. Um, it's a 598-mile hike on old, scary desert trails. And about 80 miles into his hike, it says he came to a certain place. In the Hebrew, Ha-Makom. And get this, it's translated as place. Profound, right? <laughs> but there is an ancient Jewish mystic tradition that translates Macomb as not just place, but also God. Paul says it like this. In Colossians 1.17, Jesus is in all things and holding all things together. And I think this is a hint of what is to come in this text. But for Jacob, it's just mundane, right? For Jacob, it's just this this miserable desert place that he has to sleep in enemy territory. And I wonder how many of us feel like that sometimes, right? At our jobs, in our relationships, we miss it. Sometimes we feel like Jacob and we miss it. And Jacob, probably rightly feeling burnt out and lonely, finds a stone for a pillow, which sucks, but he's got nothing else. And this is a desolate place, and the only reason he stopped, as the text says, is because it's sundown. So he had no idea what was about to happen. So probably exhausted from his hike, he passes out, in this desolate desert wasteland, and he fails to see what was in this place that he had labeled as mundane. And I wonder, I wonder what we fail to see around us when we're trapped in the fog of the mundane and the desolate spaces in our lives. I wish I had the foresight to know that my son was going to grow up and have to go to kindergarten like two weeks ago and I cried like a baby because I wish I spent more time paying attention when he was around, right? Or that I've worked so hard to get all this material wealth, right? But now I just feel like, man, did I miss something? Did I miss it? And like so many of us all the time, Jacob fails to notice the miracle that's always performed. But there's another story in scripture of someone who doesn't miss it. Someone who was aware of the divine. This is a story we all know. And the story is Moses' encounter at God, of God at the bush. And it goes like this. Moses was tending the flock and beyond the wilderness he came to the mountain of God, Horeb. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the heart of a flame from inside the bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned in fire, and yet the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I must turn aside now so that I can see this awesome sight. Why is the bush not consumed? And when the Lord saw that he had not turned aside to look, God called to him from within the bush. Now, Usually, we read this story as a miracle story, right? That God lit a bush on fire to catch his attention, and it's a miracle. But this fails to explain why God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, right? Who split the seas, who fashioned pillars of fire and made the sun stand still, would resort to something so trivial and undramatic to attract Moses' attention as to make a bush burn without being consumed. It's a cheap trick, right? If we look more closely at the process of combustion, how long do you think you'd have to watch some sticks burn before you realize they weren't being burnt up? Because even like dry kindling wood doesn't burn up for several minutes. This meant that Moses probably would have had to watch this bush burning amazingly without being consumed for several minutes before he could possibly know there was even a miracle to watch. And this, I think, is the art of contemplation, of awareness, the art of boredom, which can lead to a life of realizing or seeing the divine flow that is always around us, moving in love. Jesus says it like this, blessed are your eyes because they see, and blessed are your ears because they hear. TV show producers um, who are heavily invested um, in the span of human visual attention seem to agree that even one minute is out of our limit. So the burning bush story, I don't think it's a miracle. I think what it was was a test. God wanted to find out whether or not Moses could pay attention to something more than a few minutes. Was he aware? Was he aware? And maybe, maybe there's burning bushes all around us, all the time, and we just fail to pay attention to them. But Jacob My boy, Jacob misses it, right? He's not aware. He falls asleep in a place that he writes off as just ordinary, as basic. And it says that that Jacob has this dream of a ladder with angels going up and then going down, which seems like the wrong direction, right? They're going up and then down. It's almost as if these angels were listening to the concerns and prayers that Jacob had as an exiled penniless nomad. Prayer is much like the vow he makes after he encounters God. He says this, Don't leave me in this barren land, hungry and naked. Provide for me, God, and protect me so that I can then return safely. And then the text says in verse 13, There above it stood the Lord, and he said to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac, and I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offering. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. So notice this. Jacob the deceiver doesn't just inherit the inheritance. He becomes inheritance. He becomes the actual blessing. God uses this unlikely deceiver and makes him the head of the family, his family on earth. This story, the story is not about being morally right. The story is not about being even spiritually aware. This story for me is much deeper. The story is about waking up a sleeper to the divine reality that is always before everyone. And again, I resonate with this story because my past with drugs and homelessness um, and in rehab, it's like it goes hand in hand with his story. And I prayed a prayer similar to Jacob's at one point when I went to rehab. And basically, it was along the lines of, I have nothing. Uh, Look where I got myself. Please help me. And it was on that same night that I prayed that prayer that I knew that God existed somehow. And after that, a lot of good things started to come my way. Um, I got a job in ministry pretty quick. Um, I went back to college. I married my wife. We had kids. I got my dream job, or it seemed like my dream job in ministry. Um, And I spent, before that, two years homeless in San Francisco. So that was like a lot for me to get all that so quickly. And um, when I was ready, I came back to, to, to California and I went to rehab. And on that night... When I dropped to my knees and I prayed that prayer to a God I didn't believe in, I was instantly transformed. And it was on that night that I really knew that God existed and I was instantly covered in warmth and could sense something had changed. It was as if the world before was like black and white and all of a sudden it was like 6K HD. I don't even know what the technology is today, but it was vibrant. So I made a vow to follow that God, Right? I went from not trusting or believing in God to believing and then following him. And it took me on an amazing journey. I ended up staying sober um, from heroin, going through the 12 steps of AA. I even ended up coming to know Jesus and volunteering in a church, a church where they saw gifts in me that I didn't see in myself, where they called me into ministry, a church where I met my wife. And after graduating from college with a degree in uh, religion ministry leadership, um, I was like hired like that as a youth pastor. And this was my dream job. This is what I wanted to do since I got sober. God kept on pulling through. His hand was on my life, and it was amazing. My wife and I were pregnant. Um, we didn't have insurance, and that insurance went through the week that we had our kid. We were in the hospital. We had $14 in our bank account. So irresponsible. <laughs> I left that night that we gave birth. she gave birth, not we, she did all the work. Um, that night, um, I got my first direct deposit into our account. We had our first paycheck, and we left with, with money in our bank, which was like crazy. The church, I guess, is obviously where God wanted us. It definitely felt that way. Um, but, like all interesting stories, there's a twist, right? Else it would be really boring. Like one fat hobbit once said, adventures are not all pony rides in May sunshine. My dream job turned out not to be so dreamy. The transition, like most transitions when the high school pastor leaves are pretty tough, right? You're not the guy that they love and they're high school kids. This is a true story. This is a funny story, I think at least. Um, one of the, the, the first small groups I ever ran, I just um, taught on the passage about Jesus teaching us to love our enemies and I made the dumb mistake of sitting in a, a small group of kids who didn't like me and said, hey guys, so who's your enemy? And one kid, one of the kids, just gets up, looks me straight in the eyes, and says, it's you, and I hate you. I'm like, all right, cool, sweet, love you too, man. Um, yeah, but these issues, I mean, those are petty, right? That's just, like, comes with the trade. But they turned out to be really, really petty after a freshman girl in our uh, youth ministry was murdered along with her whole family by her brother with a shotgun and um, that was with I think my first month on staff and so my my dream job turned out to not be so dreamy and I worked really hard to care for students and families but nothing can prepare you for that and I was really green and I know it's pretty self selfish of me to say but after a few months I got burnt out and I began to feel really discouraged again, like God had left me and everything once again was meaningless and I'd go there. The church that I served in began to really feel like this desolate desert for me. Um, but something happened that woke me from that slumber. At the high school summer camp that year, um, there was a pastor named Steve Carter who was the teaching pastor at Willow Creek for a while until he left recently Um, and he was speaking and I got to sit down with him and just have some lunch with him and I was sharing with him how I was feeling and my story and stuff like that and he recommended a book by a guy named Lawrence Kushner who is a rabbi and a Jewish mystic and the book was called God was in this place and I did not know so when I got home from camp I bought the book and it was in this book where I was first introduced to a different way of looking at the story that we read today. And I'd like to read you a, a section from this book that woke me up and set me back on my path again. And I hope if you're in a similar season, this will help too. And so this is what Rabbi Kushner writes. You already are where you need to be. You need to go nowhere else. Feel it now in the moisture on your tongue. Sense the effortless filling and emptying of your lungs. The involuntary blinking of your eyes. Just an inch or so behind your sternum, your heart beats. This is where the Macomb is. Right here all along, and we did not know it because we were fast asleep here in the very Macomb. And it was in that moment that I realized that God had not left me. God has not left any of us, nor will he. No matter how we feel right now, I think a lot of time faith is a simple game of awareness and realization, a game of silence and taking notice of the mundane and realizing that it is all a gift and all a miracle taking notice of those desolate liminal spaces and seeing that transformation is always indeed at work. Just look at Jacob. Jacob wakes up and then he erects a stone and he makes it into a pillar and then he anoints it with oil to set it apart as a holy place for God. So a stone is then transformed into a holy pillar. And then he names the place Bethel the house of God. So a desolate wasteland is transformed into the very house of God, the gate of heaven. And finally, he makes a vow with God, a statement of worship, promising that he will give back 10% of whatever God gives him on his journey. And if you read on in Genesis, Jacob leaves this place a very poor man without a wife and then returns married, a very wealthy man. The story, I think, is about many things, but most importantly, it's about how awareness or being awake to God's reality can lead us into a life of transformation. And the secret, really, is there is no secret. That he's always here. He's always been here. That we live in seasons, sometimes life's tough, sometimes it's not, But the reality is is that Jesus is in all things, that he is holding all things together, including your very life, even if it feels like a mess. So maybe what we need to be saved from is the idea that our life isn't enough and that we need more. To realize the miracle is already in front of us all along. Maybe we just need to wake up to the reality that God is in all things and holding all things together, including you. And maybe our job as people who follow Jesus is to patiently listen to the silence for his voice so that we can speak into a very broken world that needs more love. Maybe some of us also need to be reminded that God is in this place and now you are aware. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you are so gracious and loving and that you both use characters like Jacob, who is not aware, and characters like Moses, who was aware at least once. And that ultimately you are a loving God that is here to reveal a path of love and transformation. So as we leave today, within moments from now, there are people that need to hear this news, that need to be loved like you love us. And so I pray that you would continue to transform our lives as we go out into your world and love it like you loved us first. So we love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.